Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sebastian Tyndall, Head of L&D at Vitality Health, about his team's resources-led approach to L&D. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Sebastian. Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. It's a, it's a genuine pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, you're Head of Learning and Development Operations at Vitality Health, is that right? That's right, yeah. I've been for about five years now. Oh, wonderful. And, uh, and I became uh, aware of your work when I heard you on Michelle Ocker's Learning Uncut podcast. So uh, shout out and thank you to Michelle and her great podcast for that. Now, um, I wanted to continue that conversation because you're not doing things unconventionally for the hell of it, but because you're really making a difference. So I'd like to kick off today with uh, a line from your LinkedIn profile because I think it helps to illustrate some of that difference. Now you state that you created custom learning delivery model and uh, approach to workflow learning, implementation reduced project turnaround time to seven working days, decreased training minutes required by 31% and increased all evaluation metrics. There's so much in there to call out, but perhaps we could start with the decrease, uh, the decrease sorry, in training minutes required because L&D like to count large numbers of hours and days of training. So why are you doing this the other way around? Yeah, so you know, first I was introduced to Michelle through, through Laura Overton, you know, lucky to spend some time with them and they've been an amazing help to me. So I just mm-hmm. want to say thank you to them. And, and, and genuinely, I've listened to your podcast since since it started so it is it is great to be talking to you rather than just listening to you on my morning walk but um in truth so, so the linkedin profile actually the stats are a little bit out of date now so it's close mm. to, to 56 percent wow. so you know the gains of it have endured in terms of the reduction training minutes which i guess is, is certainly positive for the purposes of this case today um but just you know to the why though and, and to be honest i do get asked this a lot you know, and I think I always draw it back to you know, think about how organizations report on their performance. You know, there's a reason that businesses don't report on gross profit alone. Mm. People are, are far more concerned with the net profit as that accounts for the costs incurred by the business to deliver those profits, right? So now we, you know, we assume that L&D department has, has a load of evaluation metrics you can share. You know, that's brilliant. But one of the, the kind of major input measures it has on how it achieved those metrics is the, is the invested time to, to almost train them. You know, the, mm. the time people had to take away from, from their role, you know, the, the higher that number, the higher the cost. You know, the, yeah. the evaluation metrics measure the profit of the investment, but mm. the investment that, that the department has made is the training hours to, to get them. So for me, you know, why would you advertise your departmental costs as a as a metric to celebrate? You know, it, it's not in the activity, but in the in the efficacy that L and D departments can can demonstrate value. And I think in my context, the majority of the organisations frontline staff members, and that's that's that will be true of many of, of the listeners as well. And every minute that those those people spend away from their from their role is budgeted for. It impacts our, our members. It costs us money. And I just, you know, am I really expected to waltz into an exec committee and say, hey, you know, remember last year I, I took your staff away from their jobs for 10,000 hours and it cost you 500 grand. Next year, I'm going to double it, you know, cue, <laughs> cue the fireworks, you know, as they kind of slam the door in my face. And I think 
that in my experiences is absolutely not what organizations want and you know when when does that end you know does the perfect and the department by those metrics finally manage to train people for 35 hours a week every single week so they don't do any work yeah. i guess you know if you if you gave an organization a choice between the ability to land instantaneous organizational change versus a three-month lead time they're going to choose that instantaneous change you know, and, and we are we going to create that conflict of interest by saying well we're taking longer and longer to do things when actually what you want is things to happen quicker and quicker so it, that for me immediately will create a disconnect in how we communicate with our stakeholders and uh, and of course with the the traditional metrics uh, or the primary metrics of traditional learning and development functions being attendance and completion uh, largely with um, uh, real results absent, then of course, you know, we, we are talking about uh, uh, about the the hours and days being being uh, of, of primary focus and concern mm-hmm. not only to L and D but also to uh, to stakeholders. Because it, I love to your point there. When when does that actually stop? Um, uh, but but what I like about what you're saying there is that that if it's just an indicator as to where what it is you are actually trying to achieve then of course you want you want a reduction you don't you really don't want to be taking people away from their work and this is why i think that there's a distinction between performance focused learning and development in which you are seeking to affect the way the work is done and results and then you've got the more programmatic or traditional or or learning led in which there are no um I suppose really clearly defined results other than people showing up, people attending. Mm-hmm. And of course, then you are promoting learning and development as a perk because, hey, you know, in our EVP, we say that people attend at least seven hours of training per year. And of course, that's a perk. It's not actually an indicator of potential growth or uh, or effectiveness of that L&D team. But I want to get more forensic, Sebastian, on, uh, mm-hmm. on, uh, uh, on your statement there, because you've also stated that your project turnaround time is seven days. Now, L&D projects have been known to take months. So again, how do you do this? So I think one of the one of the byproducts of efficiency and, and efficacy is always is going to be speed. You know, you've got mm. more time. You can help with more projects. And I think, you know, the, I think the challenge that that will resonate with a lot of people that are listening here, a lot of L and D teams, is that through no fault of your own, you can be stuck in this project purgatory. You know, it mm. it keeps moving back. Maybe it's IT, it's a legal issue. You know, whatever it may be. And all the while, you've got a member of your team engaged with that project, delivering nothing and, and technically incurring a cost to your L&D department's budget with no return, you know, if you see your department as a business, right? So I think in, in, in every organization, you, you be what you need to be. And, and Vitality is a, is a high change environment. And, and I mean that, you know, I think that's, that's putting it into context against other places I've worked. You know, mm. my team delivered over 120 projects over the last 12 months. It's going to be wow. more over the next 12 looking at the roadmap. I think what that means is it, it there's never any shortage for L&D demand. And, and in truth, it, it creates a competition for it. And that that's important and relevant. And, 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 I'll, and I'll explain. So L&D does not arbitrate what happens next in a business. Hmm. The thing that does that is the business case. And that's what should prevail every time. You know, yeah. and, and the better the business case for the project, the more chance it will have to get allocated L&D resource, um, you know, to it to support it. And I think increasingly through this kind of challenging dynamic, 
requests for our team support have reached a point where they, they now have, have pretty well articulated and data-driven business cases. But that that was absolutely a journey. You know, I remember when I first started Vitality and, and certainly in other organizations, it, there was that lack of ability to prioritize work requests. And instead it would just be, well, what can you deliver next? Mm. You know, that, that is absolutely not the discussion. The discussion is what is going to generate the most business value. And that's what we'll, we will concentrate on. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we've absolutely helped in, in Vitality. We've engineered kind of SharePoint-based forms that have a flexible logic to guide people, to steer them, to get the desired data. You know, and, it, and the, the irony is if you don't have it, then there's a good chance we will go with another project that does. Mm. If we do partner with that, that uh, with a project without the data, we'll still be asking for an analysis stage. You might as well go and get it now. Mm. You know, and I think that that continued challenge, we've reached a mutual appreciation of the data desired, assuming it, it validates interaction from our team. You know, mm. once we get through that, that kind of quality toll gate, we work really quickly and collaboratively with everyone in that project team to identify the critical tasks and steps that are needed to, to get those desired success metrics. Mm. And again, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's typical. I've heard it on, on on this podcast a few times with some great people, and it's a lesson that really resonates. Again, that's during those collaborative meetings, we identify what needs to be done, not what people need to know. Yeah, that's the crucial difference. You know, you ask a subject matter expert what people need to know, they'll say everything. Yeah, this now is about if we're an efficiency and efficacy based department, this is a scientific approach exactly what needs to be done in order to generate performance. If that hasn't been decided or defined yet, we will leave those gaps for the project team and let them know that those gaps need to be filled in order to create complete instruction for people or support. Mm. You've then got two options. We can ca you can carry on with incomplete instruction if you so wish, or you can go away and fill them quickly. And nine times out of 10, they get filled very quickly. But even at that point, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an attachment and detachment, you know, that allows us to take stock, um, have a structured meeting, set outputs every time. Every step in that custom consulting pro in the process is, is, is technically an attachment and also exit point. So mm. the projects are left with no ambiguity about what is needed. And every day, therefore, can be kind of accounted for, which allows for, for maximum speed. And, you know, over time, if a project is familiar with what we need, you can go from data to detail to MVP in a matter of days, all just yeah. working together. Clear the diaries, three days together, let's get this done. Mm -hmm. And that's everyone in the project, not just L&D, you know, creating the various resources that, that you kind of need to get, to get things done, you know, to, to enable the levels of performance that will achieve those desired metrics that we so painstakingly boiled down at the start of this process. Yeah, and you're clearly doing things differently. I remember being at a, a L&D networking event um, a couple of years back, and there was somebody from uh, from a, a well-known financial institution who, in talking about uh, L&D projects, said, and you know it can take 18 months to two years to deliver a, uh, a leadership development program. Then in the same breath said, and of course, if it takes that long, then it will be out of date. Now, what you've just described, I mean, first of all, I mean, the insanity of that, uh, that, uh, that we would have accepted that and our stakeholders would have accepted that. And even if it doesn't take that amount of time to turn it around, like from analysis to design, the scheduling and attendance could mean that people are attending a program several years after uh, the, uh, a need was actually experienced by them. But what you're talking about here isn't 
achieving 120 projects, doing the same stuff as 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 perhaps you know we might have been doing 10, 15 years ago in learning and development, for which it's still um, the norm for uh, uh, for many in uh, in learning and development. But what you're talking about is a is a fundamentally different approach. Picking up, I mean, we've never spoken before, Sebastian, but it sounds to me as if you run a backlog and you run, you run at least agile principles, if not uh, if not fully agile, but also uh, a resources led approach. Now, could you just unpick some you know? A, your approach to uh, to those projects, because again, referring back to Michelle uh, uh, Michelle Ocker's um, Learning Uncut episode with yourself, you went from what was it, fourteen or sixteen projects running traditionally to you know eighty odd in, uh, by the time of, the, of that podcast. But now you've mentioned one hundred and twenty, which is is quite some shift. So uh, so yeah, could you tell us how how you do that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll try and keep it, you know, succinct enough for listeners because because obviously there's, there's a lot of steps in there, but unfortunately we're only together for a short time. But, mm. you know, the, the headlines for me are, we'll obviously go through that data analysis and, and, and as everyone does, just to ensure that we're understanding the reasons why people are not performing. Yeah. We then sit in a room with those process owners and those stakeholders to go through, like, as I described, that rapid task analysis to identify exactly what people need to do in order to perform. Now, what, what's really important is that's a really detailed meeting to remove ambiguity because mm. it's when you start getting ambiguity, it leads to interpretation, which leads yep. to variances in performance. And that's absolutely not what we want. You know, and we then identify which are the most critical tasks for performance. You know, and criticality is defined by um, significant detriment to you know, customers, staff members to reputation, but also they just are irreversible. You know, if you get mm. that wrong, you, there's no coming back from it. Therefore, that is the stuff that if you're really going to support, you should put the emphasis on. Yeah. Um, and then again, once we've all agreed on those, and it has to be a mutually agreed thing about, about the, the criticality of tasks is that is the focus for designing resources. Okay. And a lot of people, when they speak to me and, and they have conversations about this, they just assume that a resource is a, a handout or a, mm. you know, a PDF. You know, absolutely not. A resource is anything from a calculator to a pop-up in a system. It's anything that helps to ensure the performance of the people to follow this process. Yeah. And the conversation we always have is, you know, what, why teach someone to do something they will probably forget to do if a system can just tell them to do it when they need to do it? Yeah. That is going to be far more adept, efficient, and effective at supporting performance than anything else. So let's just do that. And mm. you're not going to get a lot of pushback from the people in the room. Um, but once we've done that, we've had those conversations, we break really quickly, we take those map steps, and we actually go and run a user experience session with the end users. Mm. Uh, and what they will do is we've got a custom process where they will, um, they will categorize the complexity of it. Now, the more complex the change, the higher margin for human error and mm. therefore potential for variance in, in performance. And of course, you know, we don't want that. So we get those scores, that feedback, and they actually go back to the project teams because, again, they can make any necessary amendments to this, um, which can make it simpler and therefore less training minutes required, less variance in performance. Mm. So we're almost kind of... Um, uh, having those conversations with end users, feeding those back and immediately helping them sh shape the solution. And mm. in those, those UX sessions, we'll also ask them, you know, questions that really benefit us. Those things like, you know, if you had to go live on this tomorrow and you couldn't be trained, what one thing would you want in front of you to make sure you got it right every time? 
Yeah. And every time you do that, people come up with, with brilliant suggestions. You know, yeah. there's, there's an element of ergonomics in there. It's like, right, you get a call now, where would you go and look? And that's where we will start to try and place those resources. So there's, you know, there is a bit of ergonomic guidance from the end users in there. Um, so, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll set sort of really tight deadlines for that resource creation hmm. uh, and any learning material on kind of an MVP, MVP basis. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, we don't do singular learning interventions or interventions of any kind. You know, we create these as the days go on, and, and then obviously mm. we we sign off and release. You know, to get those that those impacts, and and again we we analyze after every release, see what uh, corrections need to be made, and and seeing how the resources are being used, click rates, residency time, mm-hmm. and and I guess for us, if resources allow people to get it right every single time, why wouldn't you prioritize that? over creating training, which again, yeah. you know, I know we'll probably have that discussion at some point around classroom versus resources, right? Hmm. And the, the thing that strikes me um, there and to, to fill in some uh, uh, some gaps for the, the listener, if this is a if this is a new approach, Sebastian, what I always find is that um, that once you become um, confident and you have some experience in say a resources-led approach which is determined by data and discovery with the user group that you are seeking to influence then the solution becomes really quite obvious but you but you get down to a point of really knowing and understanding what it is that they need what i love about where you're taking that is that the 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 medium seems to be determined a great deal by the end user as well when when talking about what it is that you're looking to fill. Now, um, there's a couple of things really strike me when uh, when you say that. Um, number one is that when we rely on assumptions and we don't fill in those gaps, the types of solutions that we've traditionally developed have been day-long training courses because in the absence of knowing, you fill your bucket with everything. You want to put everything you possibly can in there and the only thing that that's not is sound in any kind of learning design because you would never put that much stuff in if you really did understand how people learn because they couldn't possibly uh, have known that. But also another thing that strikes me is the amount of trust you're placing in the end user because the so much of the premise of traditional learning and development is people don't know what they need. And of course, when the conversation is framed in the context of what do you need to know or what do you need to learn, of course, people don't really know because it's just so nebulous. I mean, it could be absolutely anything. And so these people that have been hired into our organizations by line managers who believe that they are the very best people available technically and attitude-wise to bring in, we don't trust them to know what they need. I think I've, I've, I've known for a long time that the, the, the perception of learning and development and our value in organizations and therefore the solutions that we seek to apply to any given problem has been on us. That's our problem. You know, and then then what we do is people aren't going to the LMS or uh, then their performance isn't changing after people are going on training courses. So what do we do in L&D? We go, well, that we need to teach them how to learn. And here we go. Oh, my goodness. When, when you take the development so far away from the workplace and the challenges people are experiencing, 
it is going to be fractured and it might even be fractured in ways that just can't possibly be mended. But what I love about what you're saying here is you're putting it on you, you're changing the, the way that you do things in order to make sure that people can do the things they're trying to do. And of course, that's going to have an impact on their prospects as well. So it's not necessarily just about immediate performance and, uh, and assimilation. But if people become more equipped more quickly, and then they learn how to do the jobs or, or are able to pivot with your support, then of course that's going to improve their prospects in the organization. Am I right? Absolutely right. Look, and it's funny because I remember listening to one of the podcasts that you did with, with, with Bob Osher a while ago and it was, it was brilliant. And, it, and I think I was really searching for what, what the answer is here because we were pushing towards this focus of reducing training. Then you kind of have this existential crisis of, what do I do then? Like, what am yeah. I, what is my role here? And I think, you know, we, we, we had to have the confidence to press forward and say, the end goal is to not to have to train people. If your yeah. processes are well designed enough, you know, when you get an iPhone update, you don't get someone from Apple calling you the next day to give you a two hour training session. It's there and it should make the process more ergonomic. So, you know, th this is something that I think L&D teams can really equip themselves with to say, if a process requires loads of training, it's not very good then. Mm. So actually make it better. Don't use that as overspill. You know, training is not an antidote to technical debt and poor design processes because people are people. There is human error. The more steps there are, the more open to interpretation and potential failure points there are. Actually, there has to be a mutual appreciation to say, if, if we as an organization want to move quicker, there is a responsibility to not only design things for people that are easy, but also mm. we want to move with absolute agility to say, training will technically slow us down, so let's prioritize performance. And if we have to train people, so be it. But the number one thing for us is to be able to support our members and our staff members to be able to do their job as quickly and as, as efficiently as, and as well as possible. And that doesn't mm. always mean you have to train them. No, and going, you know, going back to uh, to uh, Bob Mosier, and of course I was um, uh, fortunate enough to have Conrad Goffison on the at the podcast yeah. as well, who strongly advocate um, start with performance, start with where people are working and seeing if you can influence them there, work backwards. And then if training is required, it's almost as a last result because, exactly. because you've tried everything where the work is actually happening, where so much traditional is you start with the training course and then you look to reinforce what was trained with job aids, which is completely the wrong way around because it's it, it, without the analysis that you're describing, I mean, it's a, a lot of training is just hit and hope. It's just fill fill up stuff, fill up a bucket full of stuff, yep. and see and see what could possibly help. Now, what I've found, Sebastian, is that whenever I've posted about resources-led approach on social media, I get challenges from those who run classroom training business or predominantly classroom training businesses or functions, saying that resources are okay for sharing information but not for developing skills. And I counter this by saying that resources don't actually replace classroom training. But there are two important considerations in addition to this. Number one, resources gen generally replace nothing at all. And so become an alternative to fumbling around trying to solve problems that have already been solved thousands of times mm -hmm. before by those who've encountered them at the same organization or as they assimilate to the same level or they become uh, or they're familiar with a particular role. And secondly, fewer people attend or complete 
training courses than you could possibly anticipate. <laughs> there was some research a few years back that stated that 77% of respondents, uh, and this isn't L&D, this is real people, hadn't been on a course of any kind in more than two years. So more skills development is done via role modeling and, st and just trying stuff out in real life than any classroom training and therefore resources are perfect for supporting this. Now, what's your view on the potential of resources beyond just sharing information and then into skills development? So, I mean, I, I, I get asked this question a lot, you know, and I think, mm. I, I don't know if you can classify it as, as, as LinkedIn Marmite, but some people will send me messages and say, you know, this is great. Can you tell me more? And mm. some people send me messages and just say, I haven't got an earth, an earthy clue what you're talking about. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And you sound like you've lost your mind, which I you know I'm genuinely a very open-minded person. I love it when mm. people reach out because I do love, I do love the debate, but you know, truth be told, and I'll be, I'll be, be cards on the table about this. When people ask me the question and say, what about classroom? No, you can't replace that. Even mm. the question shows a little bit of a lack of understanding. Now, yeah. I, I've got no issue with classroom, but it's a method of delivery and a way of imparting knowledge and not an approach on its own. You know, yeah. Methods of imparting information are just one small element of an overall approach. Mm. Now, as I always say to them, so a resource-led approach might include classrooms. They aren't mutually exclusive, but, and I'm not even going to get into the perils of you know, event-based learning, singular learning mm. interventions, or even kind of waterfall approaches, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a whole other kind of podcast for another day. But the general conversation I have is, let's, let's assume you run a brilliant classroom session. Mm. You know that people won't remember all of it. What are you left with after that event? It's, it's your imperfect memory and maybe a handout, if you're lucky. Yeah. So what your approach absolutely must do is account for performance correction and knowledge management after that point. Hmm. And people for, who argue for classroom in this context are only considering the imparting of knowledge, whereas resource-led is a much wider lens that looks at, it, it looks at imparting, maintenance, and, and improvement of an individual's skill and knowledge, and hmm. ultimately performance in the work context. And it's funny, you know, long after that classroom session is finished and ultimately before people have a chance to apply those skills, there's an exponential amount of knowledge erosion. How do you make sure people can, can correct and, and perfect? And what happens if they've forgotten something critical? You can't mm. go back to the classroom. So I think the conversation that I always have is, isn't it? what happens if you spend the majority of your time creating resources that support people to not only do it, but also improve as they go, and only mm. the things that you couldn't support through resources, that's when you, you teach them through whatever medium that, that you want. Yeah. I think for, for me, that resource focus is, takes you past imparting information, and it's it's that comparing a, a method of delivery like classroom to a more holistic approach like performance support is a strange departure point for conversation. And I think that's where some of the, 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 the kind of a, a more more abrasive reactions to it that you normally mm. get. Yeah. And of course, it's that, yeah, it's that misconception. And those, those look, not everybody who works in learning and development has actually worked in a learning and development department. So, yeah. so look, this, I see this as an opportunity to, to provide insight rather than um, uh, knock those who, who haven't. But um, I don't know about you, Specium, but the vast majority of people in the organizations I work with didn't attend training courses. And it's certainly like some of the smartest people that, that I worked with, I never saw them on training mm -hmm. courses. So they were getting this from elsewhere. Now, if what you're relying on is people self-signing up um, uh, 
to your training courses and those training courses to be coincidentally timely enough to actually affect performance then largely you're going to be way off and i think that what you've just what you described earlier going back to uh, to more data and evidence driven um uh, exploration to create custom resources that affect the work that work just can't be done for day-long training courses um and go and, and you know I, I concur with you as well that there is definitely a place for classroom it is a great place uh, to 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 get like minds together or people uh, to uh, to meet across a business to question debate and challenge to practice um some of um uh, some of the things that they'll be expected to do in order in the in the context of their work mm. but in terms of of absorbing an enormous amount of information or a day's worth of information it's just it just was never fit for purpose oh. well when i say never fit for purpose it probably was when work was more predictable and manual but for knowledge work it just it just isn't the case and i think that that there's got to be far more hit and hope and luck involved uh, in it really hitting the mark than uh, than than perhaps we we're, we're always ready to admit now you just described your so your approach and so the end user experience as well as what stakeholders ask for mm-hmm. uh, sometimes there's going to be a mismatch so what kind of change work did you need to do to transition from from your previous model, which I'm assuming um, more and more people in learning and development would recognize, to the one that is more data-driven and resource-led. And how, how did you do that, say, for stakeholders and leaders, for employees, and for, for those in your own learning and development team? So I think we, we started, obviously, with the team first, and we knew that was going to be mind, a mindset shift. We, we've actually taken the majority of our team from frontline roles, which... Mm has been brilliant in the sense that there was there was little to unpick in terms of traditional methodology. And ironically, it, it's been the people who have the, the extended experience that have had to really consciously change their approach. And it's an ongoing thing. So obviously we start with our own team, but you know, this it, it's a funny question that I do get asked a lot because you know, people say, how did you get agreement from the business to kind of go for this approach? And it's always been my belief that I'm, I don't see why I would have to go and ask anyone's permission to do it. You know, why, why would I ask someone who isn't in my area of specialism whether I can move to a different method? Now, yeah. I, I am responsible for L&D. It's my head on the block. If it is my responsibility, give me the authority to decide how we do it. And all mm. you need to do is hold me accountable for the, for the results. And if it's wrong, that is completely on me. That's absolutely yeah. my fault. But, but, it, but it kind of works both ways. So I think what, what we did was show them there's been a due diligence behind it. We show them the latest thinking, acknowledge the pain points, which again, mm. you know, any sales training of all time will show you that's a good place to start, provided the premise. And we just agreed the KPIs. Now that's the consulting 101 for me. It's like, what are, yeah. we, what are we trying to do here and achieve collectively? Because if we can agree that, then the, the approaches are almost secondary to that. What is the mm. aim? What are you trying to get? And, and I think it came to the point where they want to deliver change very quickly. They want entrepreneurial approach and they're brilliant at it. They're, they're, mm. Vitality are just amazing at coming up with just things that will change the behavior of our members to live healthier lives. Who, who am I as a department to turn around and say, you've come up with this great idea. It could make us a lot of money and make a lot of people happier and healthier, but you're going to have to wait three months until the classroom's free. You know, that. For me, that was just a departure point. So what do you want? And it was always absolute agility and efficiency. Yeah. And quite quickly, the results will tell you if it's going right or wrong. And, and we'll probably give you that permission to take it to the next level. Again, mm. it, it helps to work with some brilliant kind of stakeholders in this business who 
who really challenge you. And that's, that's key. I, I found it working with other people and myself, certainly included in this. I, got, I was getting really skilled at telling the stakeholders why they couldn't have what they wanted. Mm. It's, it's like, it was becoming like, you know, almost the point where you had to explain, this is what you want to achieve, but you can't do that. And here's the LND reasons why. And actually I thought to myself, what if, what if we actually could do those things? You know, what, yeah. what if we could get close to instant change? And there's some examples where we were getting notified of stuff at three o'clock on a Friday that was going live on a Monday at 9am. Hmm. And after, you know, a few gray hairs the first time around, I was like, well, what if you could do that? Because wherever you go in your career and your life, if you can, if you can thrive in that environment or at least survive, you're setting yourself up for the future and actually really lean into that challenge from stakeholders and go, maybe there is a way. And if yeah. there is, we are going to find it. And I think, them seeing you move from this L&D, and I'm doing air quotes, L&D and operations as a separate entity. We are on the same team. We're in the same business. It's all one project. Therefore, if this is the success metrics, here's some of the things that we've got to do. It might not be the ideal L&D output, but it is very speed conscious. Let's agree the metrics and the trade-offs and let's get this done as quickly as possible. And very, very quickly, people warmed and and, and re- really resonated and that we were trying to come along on that shared goal. What you've just described there, Sebastian, is, uh, is it, it echoes what, what many of the leaders have said on the podcast previously, uh, whether it be Tracy Waters at Sky, whether it be Anne-Marie Burbage at uh, um, Utility Warehouse, whether it be Adam Harwood, where they say there wasn't an overhaul. Uh, they, they, they didn't wait for a mandate. They ran an experiment. Yeah, and they they just learned from it. They saw whether it worked. It did work. It got the results, and so they became uh, bolder and more skilled at doing that thing. And and uh, and all it took really, um, instead of instead of it being um, a grand plan that needed to be launched or implemented, uh, it just became. It started with conversations with key stakeholders and leaders about outcomes, rather than delivery mechanisms. And and that. And that was the start for uh, for so many of them. And of course, then you get the confidence and then you can talk about what it is that you've achieved rather than what this solution might look like. And I think that, uh, that there's a there's a different level of sophistication in there that that uh, that I think comes with with that that willingness to experiment. But what it demonstrates as well is true leadership. I am deluged with uh, with uh, responses on uh, to posts on LinkedIn where people say, "Yeah, but before I do that, I need to change the learning culture. Before I do that, I need CEO buy-in. If I'm going to do that, then I need line manage to do that." And I think, "Oh, brilliant! You can think of a million reasons why you're not going to do this. Uh, the only thing you're not willing to do right now is develop yourself and show leadership." And I think that that those are just they're just exa- they're just they're just um, excuses. Mm. Um, now, you've, what you've what you've uh, uh, you've described there, um, uh, you know, there are going to be some uh, some immediate uh, examples. You know, you're gonna you're gonna help to address um, real performance um, uh, problems. But I wonder whether there have been other consequences, perhaps, of uh, of your your switch to a resources led approach. You know whether it be you mentioned the pace of solutions. Has there been a change in perception of the, the L and D function? Have you been able to? Well, you mentioned you've grown your team. Um, what have been some of the, uh, the 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 more delightful consequences of uh, of of this change? Yeah, I, I think 
you know, just to underline a point, you know, we would kind of sit here saying everything went went well. It wasn't always smooth sailing, made plenty mm. of mistakes. I think part of that approach is being prepared to be wrong and monitoring, you know, pretty regularly. But, you know, I'm always happy to emphasize the stuff that went well because it makes you sound better, but it wasn't always smooth sailing. No, no. Um, so when I joined the team sort of over four years ago now, we were averaging probably one project every four months. And now right. it's 1.6 per, per person per month. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of six times more productive than they were. The target is two. So we're still not quite there in terms of where we want to be, but you no know, significant strides. Um, you know, four people when I first joined, there's 18 now. So, you know, in terms of the efficiency, the volume is definitely there. But the, mm. the main difference for me is kind of where we sit in terms of that project hierarchy. You know, as I said, it's a super entrepreneurial, super quick business. Um, it used to be, you know, you might get 24 hours, 40 hours before a change. And, and, and do you really want to be that department that says, sorry, exec, you want to launch this brilliant partnership with Apple Watch, but um, sorry, it's going to take time to train people. You know, I thought, well, that's immediately going to be seen as the archetypal slow educational faculty rather than the kind of competent business part that that, that you want Mm -hmm. to be. So, you know, we, we, we just started focusing on how do we get quicker and quicker and quicker with that turnaround time so we're not the blockers for innovation. And that started to kind of shrinking a bit and the next step for us was was the really key one where you kind of need to add value further and further up the chain of that project team so we deliberately engineered that consultancy process as an enabler for innovation so you know not not sure exactly what your people would know to be able to do post change well you know we've got a process to help facilitate that we can identify all the steps together in a room um, you want to make this easier for your users. Well, we've got a process for that as well. You know, so I think it, it got to the point where we, we were being brought into projects sort of eight months in advance, which anything is kind of like probably too early. It's like the inception <laughs> point. And there's obviously there's a balance to be had. Hmm. But again, it, it's not just about that efficiency. And it's instead about being a, a capable department that just happens to specialize in L&D. Hmm. And if we can... We can help you throughout that process with kind of structured contact points if we need to. You know, that is all the better. You know, the sweet spot is, for us anyway, is warn as early as you can, get the details Mm. together, um, because we aren't going to be the ones that are going to slow you down. And there's so much more to the power of digital than creating libraries of content, such as custom campaigns that are triggered when somebody joins the company, when they switch teams or when they get promoted, uh, and automating these campaigns to get L&D out of the admin and deeper into the problems that will help the organization. What areas are you exploring to further integrate learning and work at Vitality Health, uh, as well as increase engagement and uh, and results? So, you know, obviously you you work for a good XP provider and you'll be really well versed in in this stuff, but Mm. it's the same it's the same kind of questions. It's, it's the age of one, like how do you lead a horse to water, you know, when you've yeah. got these resources. But I think I've always thought the answer to that is you don't. You, you, you yeah. put the water in a place where thirsty horses go. And mm. I'm just, I'm fascinated with this concept of almost an invisible LXP. You know, you, yeah. you don't go somewhere for learning. It's fully integrated in what you're doing whilst you're doing it. It kind of pops up and says like, Hey David, you filled in this form last week, but it, you know you forgot to fill in this box. So kind of remember to do it this time, and yeah. you know you took seventeen minutes to do a pivot table. So click here for a one minute reminder. Not like Clippy. I'm not saying going back to Clippy and Microsoft. <laughs> but I'm just you know there's something there. 
And I think it's that deeply personal embedded experience that I just cannot get away from. And I think mm-hmm. we're obviously not there yet, but our first step is using um, Salesforce to surface really relevant and pertinent resources yeah. based on what people are doing, you know, and that can be based on the kind of member that you're speaking to, the condition they might have. Um, it can be just some common errors that people wait, just, just to make sure that, again, you can surface things during the workflow that are more intuitive and, and, and are based on real performance needs rather than people having to go to a system or a, a SharePoint, you know, and I think that adds so much more to our repertoire, kind of way mm-hmm. beyond the, the nuclear option of a course is the subtleties of conversations like, you know, when a customer calls from the USA, we always quote in Sterling. Well, okay, mm-hmm. make a banner that pops up at the quote point to instantly convert it to the right currency based on the location. And that will make sure people get it right. Okay, change that and evaluate it. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's much more how I see our roles starting to to change and progress based on true performance support and just having a myriad of options and a spectrum rather than, you know, just one thing, whether it be e-learning or, or, or a course or classroom or whatever it is, it, it, you've got to have more in your toolkit. And, and again, mm-hmm. you don't have to go very far in history to see what happens to businesses. You only have one product, you know, you're, you're, you're ripe for disruption and actually blockbuster video, et cetera, will tell you that, that they wish they'd diversified. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and now, Sebastian, you're clearly embracing the possibilities of our profession and pushing boundaries to achieve more. But, you know, I, I see you as an outlier, uh, along with uh, many of the guests that, uh, that I've had on the podcast. Um, but why do you think L&D are slow and even resistant to adopting new approaches and especially to challenging the centrality of the course? And I've, I've seen a lot of stand-up arguments between L&D professionals, you know. It's like, I don't, know, I don't think I've ever seen it happen in any other profession. You don't see two builders standing outside a wall and arguing if it's poorly, but I just think it it, it seems to, to elicit such huge responses. But hmm. probably controversially, I don't think organisations have a full grasp of what L&D could be. And, hmm. and I think that's when you get the conflict of interest. You know, if you're... If you're in an organization as an L&D professional and you, you sit there and you just say, listen, I just ran a course, 100, 100% of people enjoyed it and found it useful. And then everyone turns around and gives you loads of plaudits. You get a big shout out from the CEO saying, well done, mm. another great course. You're the best trainer in the world. Right, we're lucky to have you. Well, you know, you go on the annual trip to Spain. What, what, where's your incentive to, to change? You yeah. know, And I think that the reality is if, if, if people are a business's greatest asset, then leaders need to pay more attention to L&D and challenge mm. it to get what they need from it. And I've, I've, heard, I've heard so many people in this profession get annoyed with others and their reluctance to change, but I don't, it doesn't make me angry. I just feel a little bit sorry for the organizations that they work in, mm. but I don't blame them for, for not changing because yeah. if, if, you, if you're getting lauded and, and, and you're getting loads of appreciation from the business for, for kind of doing the same stuff every year, then there is a strange conflict of interest to go and, ch- to go and change that. And I just don't think, you know, you, you'll get organizations and, and, and execs talking about switching to things like methodologies like agile and they're versed in things like technical debt and customer satisfaction metrics and systems 
But when do they sit there and say, I've been reading about performance support and actually why are we not doing this? It just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't kind of resonate at that point. And I do think it's an organization to challenge LMD teams to deliver more. That will make me roundly unpopular uh, for saying that. But at the same time, I still already get a few of those messages on LinkedIn. So it would just mean more contacts, more discussions, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, and, and finally, Sebastian, if the listener is inspired by the journey you've been on, the approach you've implemented and the results you're gaining, what advice would you give to L&D leaders and teams to do the same? Um, there's a lot of really good people out there. You know, your podcast has been absolutely brilliant. I'm not just saying that, you know, I've been open with you about the start. It's been really useful for me. I said that on Michelle's podcast as well. So, you know, it's a big, a really big wide world out there with some great minds, you know, go, go and, and see what's, what's out there. Um, mm. There's lots of resources now. I think going to look externally, you know, there is stuff that happens in what you think are unrelated fields that can give you loads of inspiration. And I think, I talked to my team a lot about efficacy and there was a lot of discussions in the pandemic around the vaccine. Mm. And you think about, well, we prioritize to give vulnerable people two vaccines and then other people one, and that gives you 90% of protection and 60%. And sometimes thinking, hold on a minute, how does that apply to L&D? And actually, mm. maybe it does. Maybe the people who need, who need more intervention at that point and then actually you're okay to give people a small inter and how do we do that and i think that constantly looking outside to see the lessons that we can bring back in i've just found to be absolutely life-changing you know lots of different departments like ci project management spending time with them and seeing the things that you can for, to put to, to want of a better phrase steal and incorporate yeah. into your own approach as being fantastic and i just think attitudinally that last thing is that don't ask for permission you know mm. seek, seek forgiveness afterwards and just say if you want to make us accountable for these results then allow us the ability to go and choose how we deliver them and i think that for me is such a, a departure for many people that i've spoken to and it takes guts and it's pretty nerve-wracking and sometimes it might go wrong but i just think I speak to so many people who are unhappy in their L&D role in organisations because they don't feel like they're permitted to change. Yeah. You vote with your feet. You, are, you choose to go to work every day. And if mm. you know that there's a better way of doing it, then be that agent for change. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. Thank you, Sebastian. Well, this has been hugely insightful. Uh, thank you very much for your, uh, for your generosity and your uh, insights, Sebastian. All's left for me to say is uh, thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. What was it Einstein said? If you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Well, Sebastian and his team are testament to doing things differently to achieve more in terms of quantity and demonstrable results and we could all do with following his example. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. And goodbye for now. <laughs>